So if you've got a Bible with you, you can turn to Proverbs chapter 5. If not, it'll be on the screen so you know that I'm not making this up. Uh, We're going to start in Proverbs chapter 5, starting in verse 1, and then we'll skip on to verse 15. Then I've got one verse in Ecclesiastes to read as well. This is Solomon speaking. He says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and that your lips may guard knowledge. The lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Drink water from your own cistern. This is verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. And then Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. This is God's word. Would you pray with me before we dive in? Jesus, I know um, this topic alone has created so many wounds and scars in this room. that I know I've got friends in the room tonight that are probably anxious about how we're going to approach this topic. Many of us have PTSD even dealing with the topic of sex, and so we need your Holy Spirit to not only come and show us um, what is true, what is wise, what is good, what is real about this topic, but ultimately with all of our scars and with all of our wounds and with all of our fears and shame, we... We don't just need the Holy Spirit to show us wisdom around this topic. We need the Holy Spirit to show us Jesus in the middle of our stories with this subject. So guide us now, Holy Spirit, we pray. Lead us to um, green pastures. Lead us to feast um, as with the richest of foods as we delight in what your word has to say to us tonight. Speak now for your children and your sheep are listening. We pray now for the one who you've called to teach your word that you forgive him his sins, for they are so many. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. So like we've said each week, um, as we open up Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and, and look at different topics through the lens of biblical wisdom, we are certainly asking the Lord through this study to make us wise people. We want to be wiser than we are. But at the same time, biblically speaking, the ultimate end of wisdom is not so much a set of principles as it is a person that Jesus himself has become to us wisdom. And so whenever we read biblical wisdom, there might be some great principles, some great practical ways to apply wisdom to your life, but know that that's not the whole story. Know that wisdom always leads us to the person of wisdom, Jesus himself. That is especially true tonight. That we're gonna, we're gonna look at what does wisdom look like practically around this topic of sex, but we also, because of what sex has done to us, because of how we've applied foolishness and not wisdom to sex, we need to, to be hurled at Jesus, who is wisdom to us. We need to be with a person in relationship as we study this topic. 
So two uh, brief caveats before we fully dive in. Um, and I want, us to, I want you to believe me when I say this, that um, you need to know that how this passage comes at us is in the form of a conversation. That's important for us to know. Solomon is having a conversation with his son. This is, this is Solomon having the talk with his son. I know many of us grew up and we were supposed to get the talk from one of our parents and they were either not very good or they did more damage than good. And so this is Solomon coming to give us the talk, which opens our eyes to this. It, it should invite us into this. Tonight is the beginning of a conversation conversation. And you need to know that if you don't know Midtown very well, we love conversations. And so what I want you to know is, is if you leave here with questions, we're very open to conversations. If you, if you leave here and go, man, why didn't he talk about this aspect or that aspect? Why didn't, he, why didn't he go down this road? We're aware that tonight cannot cover every single possible side road that you could get off on. And so please trust us that our elders and our pastors and our small group leaders, we would love to have conversations with you. We can't promise all the answers, but this topic in particular must be had over conversations, over coffees, in living rooms. We want to have conversations. So if you've got questions, that's great. But this conversation, like I said, comes at us from Solomon. He's talking to his son, Solomon having the talk with his son. And what's fascinating about this is that this father, Solomon himself, was an absolute train wreck in this topic, in this um, arena. Solomon, biblically speaking, was absolutely a sex addict. Solomon had over a thousand sexual partners that we know about. And so he's saying to his son, take it from someone who's learned all the hard ways that this topic can cause damage in someone's life. Son, listen to me. I'm not speaking to you as from a place of self-righteousness. I'm talking to you like a father who loves his son who has ruined his life with this topic. I know the damage of this of this. Um, arena. I know I've set my whole world on fire. I've had incalculable numbers of sexual partners. He said way more sexual partners than anybody in this room. And so he's saying to us, he's going, hey, can I teach you something, son? Can I teach you something, listener? Take it from someone who knows. Take it from someone who knows way more than you want to know about the shattered life that I have because of this topic. This is the only time in the book of Proverbs that Solomon calls wisdom my wisdom. He says, son, this, this is my wisdom. It, he generically speaks about wisdom from the Lord all throughout the book, but in this topic, he says, no, this is mine. I've learned this. The very hard way I've learned this. Listen to my wisdom, son, because I've walked the road of pain and sorrow and shame and guilt in this arena, and so here's some wisdom for it. The other side note is not just that this is a conversation. The other caveat before we get going that I don't want you to get lost in is that, yes, in this passage, in this conversation, Solomon says, my son, meaning he's talking to a boy, meaning all of the pronouns are, generally speaking, male pronouns. And he tends to paint the forbidden woman, the adulterous woman, as the problem. Like, you can read this and you can go, well, wait, is it the girls are the problem and that guys are the heroes? And why don't girls get the talking to? And, why? and don't get lost in that. Proverbs is a conversation. This part is a conversation between a father and a son. That's why the pronouns are masculine. If he was talking to his daughter, he would use female pronouns. But just know, he's, he's not painting, this is not, a, this is not a sexist father saying, be careful of girls because they're bad news. He's saying, no, son, I'm talking to you, so I'm going to use male proverbs, or I'm going to use male pronouns. So who needs to hear this sermon? Who needs wisdom when it comes to their understanding of sex? Let me, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you to do some self-assessment about your own current state 
of life. Let me ask you to be honest with yourself. This is rhetorical. Answer this as honestly as you know how when, when it comes to this topic. How has your own sexual exploration or your own sexual um, adventures or your own sexual experimentation, how has your own theology of sex worked for you? How are you doing? Do you feel more or less whole in the area of sex? Do you feel more or less wounded in the area of sex? Do you feel more or less confused? Do you feel more or less satisfied after exploring and trying it out the way that you want to try it out? Do you think you need wisdom when it comes to sex? Because here's what I know. Everybody in the room is sexually broken. Everybody. There, there is nobody in America that gets off on without being able to say, yeah, I, I've been wounded by this topic. Either things that have been done to me or things that I've done myself. I have a sexual brokenness. My sexuality is not perfect. It is not intact. There are things that I've seen. There are things that I've done. There are things that I've witnessed. There are things that have been done to me that has shattered my view of sex. Like maybe you're in a marriage right now and your sex life is so abysmal and you don't even know how to talk about it with your spouse and this is something that we don't bring up. It just stays in the shadow and we have our own opinions about it but we certainly never talk about it and you're sitting here going, yeah, I know my spouse and I need to talk about sex but I don't even know how to bring it up and so you're welcome. I'm bringing it up for you. Here is your conversation starter right now. It's happening. You can talk about it tonight. Or maybe you're single in here and you're wondering if you're ever going to have an experience of the true beauty of sex. And maybe you're wondering, am I just going to be single my whole life? Is anyone ever going to love me for the rest of my life? Am I ever going to enjoy sexual bliss for the, for the um, rest of my days? Is that something that's just far-reaching? Or is that totally a pipe dream? I don't even know what I'm supposed to think about this because I don't even have any candidates in front of me. And you get lost in this conversation. Whenever someone starts talking about sex, your view of it is so twisted because you can't even imagine that you could enjoy a sex life with someone for the rest of your life. Or maybe... When I say things like experiencing the bliss of sex, that sentence alone sounds like a complete oxymoron to you because you've, you've had such pain and such damage has been caused in your story of sex that to think about an enjoyment of sex, to think about this, this topic could be something that I would think about with a light heart or something I would think about with a joyful heart seems completely out of reach. I don't know where you are. Those are three possibilities. There's dozens more. But I know that wherever you fall in those categories, wherever you fall, sexually speaking, chances are, I'm just going to roll the dice, chances are you need some wisdom. I need some wisdom in this area of our life. And so the first thing that wisdom wants to say to us about sex, the first thing, the main thing that Solomon is saying to his son about sex is that sex is beautiful and sex is powerful. It's the first thing. Sex is beautiful and sex is powerful. That's what this whole section, that's the thesis of this whole section. Sex is beautiful and sex is powerful. It's very clear in the passage of Proverbs 5 that sex is described in such erotic terms. It's almost uncomfortable. You almost go, I can't believe this is in the Bible. And, we, and you might have caught a couple of the images that he uses, a couple of the allegories that he's using in the, in the passage. They're way more erotic than you even think on the first pass through. But if you study Hebrew, Hebrew poetry, we'll talk about a few of them, but there is so much eroticism in this little passage of Scripture, it's almost awkward to read out loud. That, that it's almost like, I can't believe those things were said out loud in a church sanctuary, but it's in the Bible. <laughs> 
But at the same time, Solomon not only describes the erotic, passionate, beautiful nature of sex, he also talks about that and he says to his son, because it's so beautiful, because it's so erotic, because it's so enjoyable, you have to be really, really careful with it. You have to be careful. It's so dangerous. It's so powerful. It, will, it can consume you because of the great power that it has. Listen to me, son. Sex can destroy a life. Let me tell you the damage that sex, this wonderful, beautiful, amazingly erotic activity, it can destroy a life. Sex is beautiful and sex is powerful. Sex has an element of great pleasure and sex has an element of great danger. First, look at the pleasure that he talks about. Verse 19 is perhaps the one that jumps off the page on the first read-through. You see how erotic this is. He says, may your wife's breasts satisfy your desires and may you ever be captivated by her love. That word captivated is a Hebrew word that literally is talking about like staggering around drunk. Like you're so hot, you're like buzzed off of the experience that you just had. You should be stupering. You should be staggering around drunk on the erotic experiences that you're having with your spouse, son. That's how I want you to be thinking about it, son. That it should be so intoxicating, you should be like a drunk person who can't even walk straight. That's how enjoyable it should be. That's how, that's how passionate I want you to think about this activity where you get lost in it. You should be absolutely, crazily, intoxicatingly drunk in erotic love. That's what your sex life should feel like, son. That's what he says to him. In Proverbs chapter 30, later on in the book of Proverbs, a different uh, sage, ancient sage from Israel is speaking. He doesn't get much airtime. It's a little sage named Agur, and he only writes in Proverbs chapter 30. But in Proverbs 30, this sage, this wise man says, hey, there's four things in the world that I've witnessed. There's four things that I've gotten to see and experience that are too wonderful for description. They're too wonderful for words. You just, you get lost in them. You get, um, you get caught up in them, and you just are drawn to the beauty of them. And the first is an eagle soaring in the skies. Have you ever seen a bald eagle flying? It's majestic. It's, it's, he does it with such ease, and you can't quite put your finger on it. How is he floating, and how is he so regal? It's, it's, it's unbelievable when you're watching it happen. That's the first thing. Second thing he says is it's like a snake. I've seen a snake slithering up the rocks. Have you ever watched a snake slither? Like, how does it do that? It does it so effortlessly. And I can't describe how he's doing it. He doesn't have legs. I don't even understand how the muscles work. How does he bend his body in such a way? How does, it, how does that happen? It, it's mesmerizing to watch happen. And then he says, oh gosh, have you, have you seen the, a ship on the seas, a vessel on the high seas? Have you ever watched with the wind and the waves, a, a master salesman, a master captain on the waves, riding the waves? It's majestic. It's beautiful. How do they do that? I can't understand it. And then he says, but the culmination of all the things that I've seen that are too beautiful for words, they're too wonderful to describe, an eagle flying in the skies, a snake slithering up the mountain, and a ship on the high seas, the thing that caps them all off is the way of a man with his wife. It's sex between the man and the wife. I can't, even, I can't even describe it. It's like watching an eagle soar. And it's like watching a snake slither. It's like watching a, a vessel on the high seas. These are all meant to be erotic invitations to imagine. Wait, wait, wait. You're telling me, Proverbs, that my sex life should be like soaring? You're telling me that it should be effortless and smooth and majestic and that I might not be able to understand it, but it should be so enjoyable that when I'm participating with it, I don't have words for it, but I know it's magical. That's what he's saying in Proverbs chapter 30. It's wonderful and it's beautiful and it's mysterious. It's like soaring. It's like riding on the waves. This beautiful mystery. You should be so mesmerized, son, by the act of sex 
not so that you could understand it because you don't understand how an eagle flies, but that you would be caught up in the erotic, passionate beauty of participating in this act. But not only that, son, not only is sex precious and beautiful, not only do I want you to be drunk on this erotic love and stumbling around in it, it's also incredibly powerful, son, he says. Solomon here is saying, look, son, no one knows more than me how enjoyable, how precious, how beautiful sex could be. But you've got to be very careful, son. You've got to be so careful because sex has the ability to destroy your life. It has the ability to bring you to absolute ruin. With all of its beauty and all of its wonder and all of its enjoyment, sex can annihilate you, son. That's what Solomon's saying. So son, this is what he's pleading with him. You're going to need some boundaries around this area of your life. Sex is powerful and sex is beautiful. And in order to contain its power and to contain its beauty, you need to put some boundaries around it. And you and I know this, that we all put boundaries around things that are precious, beautiful, and powerful. Like think about this abstract idea that's not so abstract. How about your money? Money very, very powerful. Money can be very, very beautiful. We all need boundaries around our money. I hope you have boundaries around your money. I hope you know how to spend your money, know how to save your money, because money is so powerful, and it has the potential in it for such good and such beauty that you need boundaries around it. You, you need boundaries around your time, because time can be really, really powerful and really, really beautiful if you learn how to spend it and learn how to use it. And so I hope you have boundaries around your time. You go to sleep every night, don't you? That's putting, that's putting boundaries around your time. I know I can't stay awake all the time. It's very simple. It's, it's not that far-reaching for us to admit or for us to acknowledge. We put boundaries around things that have great power and have great beauty. They have great worth and they have great danger. We need boundaries around it. And so for me to say to us and for Solomon to say to us, we need boundaries around our sex life, we all cringe at that. Don't tell me what the boundaries about my sex life need to be. I get to do what I want to do in this area. But here's the thing, whether you like to admit it or not, we all have boundaries around our sex life, all of us. We all have rules. We all have a 10 commandments of sex. Here's one that everybody agrees on. How about the boundary of consent? Yeah, we would all agree that needs to be a boundary when it comes to sex. And so we don't need to balk at the idea of boundaries. Here's the question we need to ask. We all have boundaries when it comes to sex. Do you know where your boundaries come from? Do you know what's driving them? Do you know what's informing them? Do you know what's built those boundaries? Because the Bible has some suggestions. And so if you have boundaries, would you consider leaning into what Scripture has to say as a possible, really helpful set of boundaries around this area of your life? Because here's the clear sexual boundary in Scripture as it relates to sex. Sex is so beautiful and so powerful that any sex outside of marriage vows will destroy you. Any sex outside of marriage vows will destroy you. That's the biblical boundary for sex. Look at what he says in verse 15 and 16. This is when he's getting at some of the, the boundaries that he wants his son to have when it comes to sex. And these are incredibly erotic images. If you know anything about Hebrew poetry, this is, this is so common. Go read Song of Solomon. It's the most erotic book in the whole Bible. And it's got lots of these images in it. He says, drink water from your own cistern, your own well. Cisterns and well, he's saying, son, drink water from your own cistern, from your own well. Those are erotic images for female sexuality. Only go down into your own well, son. Only dip into that well. That's the only one you need to be enjoying. That's the only one you need to be drinking from. 
And in verse 16, right after that, he says, should your springs overflow in the streets and streams of water in the public squares? That's an image for male sexuality. Should your springs be spewing everywhere in the streets? No. And so here's what the author of, of, of Proverbs is saying. Here's what Solomon is saying. You can't just deal with sex flippantly. This is your own well to enjoy. This is your own cistern to enjoy. You shouldn't be having your springs overflow into the streets, son. Casual sex is out. You absolutely cannot just put it out there. Sex with people outside of marriage vows is out. Do you want to be wise with sex? Do you want to have some wisdom as it applies to the area of sex? You need boundaries around your sex life. And the biblical boundary is this. Any sex outside of marriage vows, you should only be enjoying your own cistern. You should only be enjoying your own well. Just like you put a fence around a garden before you nurture it, because when you put a fence around a garden, if you want that garden to be beautiful, to be lush, to be, to be bountiful, if you want it to create beauty and flourishing, you've got to put a wall around it to keep certain things out. And so here's the biblical wall around the idea of sex. You can only enjoy sex. Your garden of sex can only be enjoyed inside marriage vows. So as we begin to put this boundary up, as we begin to build this wall, biblically speaking, this, this evening, we certainly need to understand that wisdom would say to us, yes, you need some boundaries around this area. But the ultimate landing place, I'm going to remind you again, the ultimate landing place as we begin to talk about wisdom and the boundaries of sex is not just to make us principally wise people. Remember, wisdom always leads us to Jesus. And so ultimately, the journey for us this evening is to find healing for our sexual wounds as we encounter Jesus with our sexual brokenness. And that will only happen when we understand that this is where so much of the pain and confusion and foolishness comes in the area of sex. When we understand that for most of us, sex has been boiled down to an event. Sex has been boiled down to an event that I participate in with someone else. It's like going to work out or going to dinner somewhere. It's just something that I go do. It's an event that I am participating in. When biblically speaking, sex is not just an event. Biblically speaking, you can never separate the spiritual from the physical. And so biblically speaking, sex was never meant to be dumbed down to an event. Biblically speaking, sex was meant to be representative of a greater event. It was meant to represent and display a much greater event. And the event which sex represents is not only the only way you will ever learn to enjoy sex, but the biblical event which sex represents is the place, is the event that we will all find healing for our sexual wounds. So many of our wounds, so many of our wounds Emotional wounds, physical wounds, spiritual wounds, relational wounds, intellectual wounds come from boiling down sex to an event instead of a representation of a greater event. And one of the things that's infiltrated our understanding in this sex as an event uh, philosophy, in this sex as an event mindset is this, is that we've basically brought a consumer mindset to the activity and the encounter of sex Look, being a consumer is pretty harmless in about 80% of the things that you and I do. Do you want a new grocery store? Has Kroger started charging you too much for almond milk? Go to Trader Joe's. 
Do you need a new job because the job that you have is uh, killing your soul? Go get a new job. Be a consumer. Make a transaction. Get the thing that will help you in that area. Do you need a bigger house because you've got a growing family? Go get a new house. Be a consumer. Go get what you need for your life. Do you need a new car? Do you, need, do you need something that this relationship isn't working out anymore? And so in a consumer relationship, when it's just about the product and the exchange of goods, you're allowed to be a consumer. But sex was never meant to happen in a consumer-based relationship. Sex was meant to happen only and exclusively in a commitment-based relationship. Commitment-based relationships are an end in and of themselves, meaning this. You don't think like a consumer in commitment-based relationships because consumer relationships say, I will be in this relationship as long as I like the product that I'm receiving. But commitment relationships say, it doesn't matter the product that I'm receiving, I'm in this. I'm not going anywhere. I'm committed to you, not to the product that I'm getting from you. There's a commitment regardless of how this relationship is serving me. That's the difference between consumer-based and commitment-based. And we've taken something, sex, that was intended only for a commitment-based relationship, and we've made it consumer-based. We've commodified it. And the Bible is warning us, Solomon is warning us, you can never commodify sex if you want to enjoy it. Sex is not simply a place where you are involved to have your own pleasure meter go up. Sex is not a place where, like a consumer, you can think, I'm in this relationship for what what pleasure I can get out of it. What's in it for me is the question that consumers ask. And the Bible says you can never ask that in sex. What's in it for me is a consumer question, not a commitment question. And whenever we, whenever we make sex a consumer-based product, whenever we make the, the, the experience of sex um, a commodity in the relationship where I'm just getting what I want for me in this relationship, we instantly dehumanize the other party. We're taking away their dignity because what we're saying is, is you only matter to me when you are serving me. And my pleasure is why I'm in this. But if you're not pleasing me, and if this sex isn't enjoyable, then I'm out. And so we rob people of their dignity. We dehumanize them when we receive the product of sex in a consumer-based relationship. And the Bible's saying you can never separate the product from the person. You can never enter into a sexual relationship when it's a commodity. If you're having sex with someone and you're not married to them, you are in a consumer-based relationship with sex. And you go, no, 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 we really love each other. Like, we really love each other. We're committed. This is commitment-based. And I'm not saying that you're a liar, that you believe that's what you feel, but here's, what, here's how I would challenge you on that. Here's how the Bible would challenge you on that. You have not made a vow before God and man to, to never leave or forsake this person until death do you part. And so on some level, if this commodity is not what you want anymore, you can walk away. You haven't pledged to that person for the rest of your life that you will never leave them. So sex ultimately is still just a product between you. You've given no ultimate commitment to that person that you will never walk away from them. In other words, when you have sex outside of marriage, it's an exchange of product, essentially, rather than an exchange of selves, which is how sex was meant to be encountered and experienced between a married couple. Because ultimately what you're saying is, I want the pleasure from this, I want the experience of this, I want the product of this, but I don't really ultimately want you. 
because I haven't said that to you yet. I haven't said that before God and man that I will never leave you. Do you know that during an orgasm, your brain actually releases a chemical, a drug called oxytocin? And oxytocin promotes a bonding experience. Oxytocin literally feeds on a permanent connection with the person that you're experiencing the release of oxytocin with. And so your body literally, biologically, is feeding on that sexual experience with the hope. It's the drug. It's the hit of, I'm having this release of oxytocin during an orgasm. And what my body is craving to experience, is craving to know, is that you will never leave me. And so we're having this intimate physical experience, but what I'm actually in my soul, in my brain, in my biological makeup hoping is happening is that you will be here forever. This bond will last forever. So can you imagine now the amount of orgasms that you've had without that other party, you or them expressing a commitment to each other for the rest of your life? How about porn? where you've now had an orgasm with someone on a screen and now your body is literally biologically dying to be connected to that person forever, to have a permanent bond with them and them never leave you and they disappear into virtual world. Think about this. If you haven't made solemn vows to the other person when you're experiencing the release of oxytocin, the release during an orgasm, you can't, they can't truly, fully enjoy that experience. It's not possible. Because the elements that have to be there for the release of oxytocin to actually take, to actually hit, aren't there because you could still walk away. The oxytocin during orgasm is saying, love me and never leave me. Love me and never leave me. Do you realize how vulnerable that experience is? Do you realize how intimate that experiences. Do you realize how scary that experience is to encounter with someone when you, both of you have not necessarily pledged the safety that would allow for that to be a truly enjoyable experience? David Foster Wallace, a brilliant journalist of the last generation, died tragically about 10 or 15 years ago. He, he's written an essay. He went and visited the Adult Film Awards in Vegas in 1999. It is a um, graphic article, if you will, but he he has some very, very helpful insights about the culture of sex that we're all living in. Listen to one of the things that he says about that experience, the vulnerable, intimate experience when you are completely naked with someone and your body is longing to know the drug hit is literally saying, please love me and never leave me. Please love me and never leave me. He says that experience was an experience that for centuries You used to have to pledge your life to someone in order to see them in their most vulnerable and intimate of places. Like the payment for that, for seeing someone that vulnerable, the payment to see someone in that intimate of a place, the only way to get that experience was to pledge your life to somebody. That's what it used to cost for centuries. And now we've dumbed down sex to a consumer transaction. So get this, get this, I'm not making this up. Sex can never be fully enjoyed. It will never satisfy you. Because the elements that need to be in place for sex to be fully enjoyed aren't there. Love me and never leave me. Which is exactly what the, the passage in Ecclesiastes is saying as well. Ecclesiastes 9, it was the last verse that we read. Solomon, who also wrote Ecclesiastes, says this. He says, enjoy your life with the wife whom you love all the days of your life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life, your portion. 
like the thing that's been cut out for you to enjoy, like your little one square foot of grass, like that is your portion to enjoy. Enjoy life with the wife of your youth because that is your portion. Your spouse is the portion that you've been given to enjoy for the rest of your life. And we hear that, that God has given us this, this portion to enjoy. God has given us this portion to be delighted in and to delight in. He tells us to enjoy our portion, not to enjoy someone else's portion. And the Bible would say, when, when it comes to us and says, hey, uh, enjoy your portion, enjoy, the, enjoy the, the spouse that you've been given, not someone else's. This is your portion to enjoy. Don't dip yourself in other cisterns and other wells. Only dip in your own cistern and your own well. That when we resist that, when we balk against that, and we say, no, you don't get to tell me what my portion is. You don't get to tell me what wells and what cisterns I'm allowed to enjoy. So ultimately, the Bible would say that our sexual deviance and our sexual folly is an autonomy issue. Meaning we stake in the ground and say, no one can tell me what my portion is. You don't get to direct. You don't get to draw the lines, God, on where my portion is. I will enjoy whatever wells and whatever cisterns I want to enjoy. I will take whatever portions I want to enjoy and delight in. So when we apply that to our own experience and our own theology and philosophy of sex and sexual experiences, ultimately what we are saying over and over and over again is, I refuse to be satisfied with what's in front of me. My portion. I refuse to be satisfied with what portion has been given to me. We constantly think we need an experience outside of our present circumstances in order to be satisfied. I've got to go get something that I don't currently have in order to be satisfied in this area. It's it's astronomically true when it comes to sex. Whether it's more sex or sex with a different partner, sex at all, sex with multiple people at the same time, sex with someone who truly gets me, sex with someone who doesn't want sex as much as me, all of it, any, any of it is pulling me away from the belief that I could enjoy sex with my own portion. And if you're single, guess what your portion is right now? That you're single. And so what the portion argument is for you too, it's not just for married people, it's saying enjoy life with the portion that you've been given. That's your portion But we resist that and we fight against that and we say, no, no, no. I need something outside of my current portion in order to be satisfied here. Proverbs wisdom would say to us, be careful when you begin to believe that sexual satisfaction and sexual intimacy, real enjoyable sexual intimacy will be found outside of your portion, whatever your portion is today. Which is why Solomon is admonishing his son to look beneath the surface here. He's he's taking his son into deep spiritual realities. When we begin to imagine sexual satisfaction outside of my current circumstances, Solomon is fighting the same battle. And here's what he's fighting for. He's fighting for the imagination and the fantasy world of his son. Because Solomon knows that's where it all begins. Solomon knows that very rarely, almost never, do sexual missteps occur and, and, and start with a sexual encounter. Almost never. They almost always start with a fantasy. They almost always start with an imagination. Look at how he starts the, conversa- starts the conversation with his son in verse 3 and 4. He says, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. 
and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, son, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. And if he was talking to his daughter, he would have said, his lips are sweeter than honey, and his words are smoother than oil. What he's saying is, what Solomon is trying to open his son's eyes to, and heart to, and imagination to, is that you're going to hear some words. You're going you're to enter into fantasy world, and her lips are going to sound so sweet, there's going to be a promise outside of your portion, a different well, a different cistern that you're going to want to go enjoy. And I'm telling you, it sounds like honey, but it will be poison to you. He knows that it's a battle for the imagination. He knows that it's a battle for the fantasy world because Solomon knows you're going to believe something about her words. You're going to believe something about the promises that this intimate call is making to you. And only in the end, that's what he says, in the end will you know that it was poison. In the end will you know that it was a two-edged sword. So I'm fighting for the fantasy belief on the front end, son. I'm fighting for you to know before you chase that other portion or other cistern or other well, I'm fighting for you not to believe what the fantasy is promising you. You thought it would satisfy you, but it wounded you. Esther Perel, she's a counselor. She gave a TED Talk several years ago called Why Happy Couples Cheat. She spent decades counseling and researching infidelity with couples And here's what she said. She said, we have no idea, no idea. She's secular, by the way. We have no idea the power of our imagination. She says, imagining, fantasizing about a first kiss with someone who is not our spouse is more powerful than the actual lovemaking. That's the draw, is that it starts right here. That The fantasy world is where it all begins. Fantasy world is where the greatest dangers are. That's what Solomon's fighting for. Her lips are going to sound like honey, and you're going to believe some things about the fantasy world that aren't true. They're going to destroy you. This fantasy world that Solomon is warning his son about, I know that we can relate, because I don't care who you are in this room, you have fantasies. You have fantasies that are outside of your given portion. And our fantasy worlds so subtly become the dangerous breeding ground for drinking something that tastes like honey but is actually poison to the soul. We know the power of a fantasy world. We know the power of living and imagining a world that is not real. We know the allure of an invitation to go to a place in our minds where we are never rejected, where we are never lacking, where we are always satisfied and always satisfying in sex. And at the center of our fantasy worlds, all of us, I don't care what it is that you fantasize about, at the center, at the nucleus of all of our fantasy worlds is the same thing. Do you know what it is? The self. That you are the center of your fantasy world. In your fantasy world, you are never in pain. In your fantasy world, you are never lacking. In your fantasy world, you are always experiencing bliss. In your fantasy world, you are always experiencing ecstasy. You are the center of enjoyment. You are the center of the storyline. Everyone and everything in our fantasy worlds exists for our own pleasure and our own glory. So I don't care how you fantasize. You might be fantasizing in the world of pornography or fantasizing about a new relational sexual adventure. At the center of that fantasy, you exist at the epicenter as the main character who's always, always experiencing bliss and is never in pain. And there's just one problem with the self being the center of the fantasy world is that we can't handle that amount of glory. (laughs) 
We weren't made to be adored by everybody else. We weren't made to be worshiped. We weren't made for everybody to just serve us in our fantasy world. We can't handle that amount of glory. Which, by the way, sexual fantasy or not, our fantasy worlds are always imagining a world where we're experiencing the bliss of intimacy. Our fantasy worlds are always imagining where we're experiencing the, the truest, most existential joy, where they all exist. Whoever's in my fantasy world, they exist for my pleasure. But by the way, our amount of time living in a fantasy world is why we're so discontent. Because it's not real. It's a different portion and Solomon would say, and the Bible would say, you can only, wisdom is trying to say to us, you will only experience real joy in reality. You can't experience real joy in a fantasy world. And so he's trying in wisdom to pull us out of the fantasy world to come back to reality. You can only experience real intimacy in real life. And real intimacy is what you crave. And so in the fantasy world, you're getting fake intimacy. In the fantasy world, you're not getting real intimacy. And so Solomon's trying to bring his son, he's trying to bring us back into reality. You fantasizing about an intimate experience where all of your desires are satisfied, you fantasize about a world that exists only to satisfy you, if that is where you spend most of your time, you will never be satisfied. This is everything from pornography to a full-blown affair. Sex outside the boundaries, the portion of marriage will never satisfy because it's pursuing a fantastical intimacy. It's not real. But remember, as much as Solomon is warning, as much as Solomon is admonishing to build the, the wall, to build the boundary around the sex life of his son, Remember, he also erotically and beautifully is telling his son how incredibly wonderful sex is in its right context. Meaning, biblically speaking, God invented intimacy and God invented sex. And he actually, I know this is crazy, he actually knows how to create it for his people. He actually knows what it would take to experience it. And the boundaries that he's put around the, the arena of sex are saying, hey, I know you want real intimacy. This is where it is, because this is reality. And so I'm inviting you to experience real intimacy. And when we dumb down sex to an event between two parties, we miss out on intimacy. Because do you know what makes, so, what makes sex so intimate? Do you know what makes sex so beautifully powerful? Do you know, do you know what se makes sex so amazing? It's because it's the only place in the created universe where you and I can be fully naked and fully loved at the same time. We don't get to experience that anywhere else. You are fully seen, fully declothed, and fully loved. Sex in its right boundaries is the only place where I can be most vulnerable and most delighted in at the same time. Sex in its right boundaries is the only place in the world where someone can see all of me and not leave me. Or, to put it biblically, sex is the only place in the universe where you and I get to experience, experience the gospel. Because you know that's what the gospel says to you. The gospel of Jesus that says that sex is not just an event, sex is representing a greater event. It's representing the gospel. You want to know how? It's saying to you what Jesus has said to you. 
Jesus who comes to you and says, you can be fully naked with me and I will still love you. I know everything about you. I know all of your imperfections, even the things you try to hide, even the sins that you feel so much shame for. I see all of them and I'm not leaving you. This is exactly what Jesus does with the woman at the well in the New Testament. She's had multiple partners, multiple affairs, multiple adulteries. And he comes there and he says, I know everything about you and I'm still here. The gospel says to us, come, stand completely naked before me with all of your shortcomings and hear the song of delight being sung over you. That's the gospel. And so sex now, in its right context, is the place where we get to experience the gospel. Sex, in its right context, is the place where we get to feel the gospel with our bodies. We literally get to participate with what the gospel is saying to us, not just in our hearts, but with our actual selves. Sex is the place. It's the closest place in the created order, in its right place, in its right context, where you will get to taste the gospel. Because it's the same thing on an infinite level that the gospel is saying to you. I see everything about you, and I'm not leaving you. I see all of your imperfections, all of your nakedness, all of your shame, all of your scars, all of your wounds, and I love you anyway. And you may think that that's a stretch and that I'm making that up, but the Bible is incredibly clear about this. It's it's like over-the-top clear about this. Do you know that one of the top three most often repeated images and allegories for the relationship of God to his people is that of a passionate, faithful husband to his people, his bride, over and over and over and over and over and over again. Like a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. How do bridegrooms, meaning like the day of the wedding, how do they rejoice over their bride? That's exactly what Isaiah is saying about the day of the wedding. That's exactly what he's saying about the love that your husband has for you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Did you catch the end of Proverbs 5 when Solomon's talking to his son? It was the last verse in the Proverbs 5 section. He closes the section by literally saying this. He's given all this talk, all this erotic, passionate, beautiful, warning talk to his son. He's given him the talk. And at the very end, this is how he closes. Chapter 5, verse 21, he says, Son, for a man's ways are always before the eyes of the Lord. Solomon's ending of his wisdom to his son essentially says this. You know God's watching you. And we hear that in our legalism and in our PTSD from being raised in the church. And we go, wait, God's watching me. Is that supposed to like scare me into being pure? Because that never works. And so I, am I supposed to like be afraid that God's watching me so I shouldn't go see R-rated movies? Because like, God's watching. Like what, what if when we hear that, we, the problem is with us, not with the text? What if when Solomon ends the section on sex and intimacy and boundaries and erotic pleasure, what if he ends that section and he says, hey, God's eyes are always on you. What if we need a re-understanding or a new understanding about what the eyes of God, the eyes of Yahweh are actually like? What if he's not like playing cop in our lives, looking down and Solomon is saying, be careful, son, because God's watching you. You wouldn't want him to catch you doing something wrong. What if he's saying something totally different? Do you know how the Bible describes the eyes of Yahweh? It says over and over and over again that the eyes of the Lord are like the eyes of a faithful 
jealous, loving husband to his bride. And those are the eyes that he looks at his people with. It was in our call to worship that Meg read for us, Deuteronomy 32. I don't know if you caught this. Listen to how, this is Moses writing. Listen to how this is right before Moses sends the people into the promised land at the end of Deuteronomy. Listen to what he says to his people, to God's people. But the Lord's portion is his people. Stop. Portion, remember we talked about that from Ecclesiastes 9. Enjoy your portion all of your days. What does the Lord call his portion? What does the, law, the Lord say is the thing that he's to delight in all of his days? The thing that he finds contentment in? What is the Lord's portion? You. And then he says, for he found them in a desert land and in a howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled them. He cared for them. And then listen to this. And he kept them as the apple of his eye. It's like two, it's, it's like, God, you can't say that to us. Like that, that there's no way that's possibly true. There's no way after all that I've done, after all the folly and all the deviance that I'm still the apple of your eye. Like what if when Solomon was looking at his son, he was saying, hey, God's eyes are always on you. Like the, the love that you so crave is already yours because God has not taken his eyes off of you. You're the apple of his eye. Do you know, do you know, Christian, that the Lord's enjoyment, the Lord's satisfaction, the Lord's contentment to have you as his spouse, you are his portion Do you know that he's not looking elsewhere? He doesn't have wandering eyes. He's not fantasizing about a different spouse. Do you know that he's content to delight in you? Do you know that you are the apple of his eye? That's how Solomon closes the wisdom section on sex. Know that your father, know that your husband is always looking at you. You're always his delight. You're all, he's always content to have you as a spouse. He's not coveting someone else's spouse. He's happy to have you as a spouse. Let that drive you, son, to building healthy boundaries around your own sex life. Paul the Apostle in the New Testament is even a little bit more explicit and more straightforward with this. Jesus as husband, church as his bride allegory. He says in the most dense section on marriage and sex, if you've been in premarital with me, it's where we spend our first session is in Ephesians 5. Paul's kind of wrapping up everything he wants to say about marriage and sex to the church at Ephesus. And Paul essentially says in this passage on sex and marriage in Ephesians 5, do you know you won't be able to fully understand sex? You won't be able to fully enjoy sex until you learn and understand all the glories of the gospel of Jesus because they're inextricably tied. You cannot separate them. Do you want to have a far more enjoyable, far more satisfying sex life? You have to understand the gospel. They're not able to be separated. This is what he says in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ, your husband, loved the church, his bride, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without, ble- and without blemish." Because of your sexual missteps, you were naked and you had blemishes. You weren't spotless and you weren't radiant. 
But because of the work of Jesus, your heavenly husband, he comes to your naked self and he says to you, I've cleansed you. I've made you without spot or stain or wrinkle or any blemish. He actually says, I've made you radiant. Translation, you can stand naked before your heavenly husband and he will fully delight in you. He's already paid for all of your scars. He's already paid. He's already cleansed you from all of your wounds. And so you can get completely naked with him spiritually. You can get completely undressed with him because your husband delights in you. He's done the work necessary to present you to himself in splendor. You can be totally naked with Jesus, totally vulnerable with Jesus, totally exposed with Jesus, and he won't ever leave you. So because you are truly naked and truly loved by Jesus, you now have all the intimacy that you want. You now have all the intimacy that you desire. This is true bliss. This is true ecstasy. And sex was made to remind me of this greater event. Sex was made to remind me of this greater reality. Sex was made to be an experience of this great reality that I can be naked and loved with Jesus. And so when we sell sex short of that, it cannot satisfy. Nothing less than a true representation of what the gospel is will do to satisfy you sexually. Nothing. It can't because sex can only be satisfying when in its truest form it is representing and displaying the gospel to God's people. So now I'm free, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free to enjoy the portion that my Lord has given me. I'm free to enjoy the boundaries that he has put up for my own sexual enjoyment. And I'll close with this question. Do you really think after hearing these boundaries that sex can only be enjoyed within the context of vows to one another, do you really think that the husband, the heavenly husband that you have, who gave himself up for you to cleanse you and wash you and present you radiant to himself with all of your scars and wounds, do you really think that his boundaries would be to limit your joy? Like, don't you think that that husband has boundaries not to restrict you, but to liberate you? What if these boundaries were actually for your greatest good and my greatest good? What if they weren't meant to harm me and, and rob me of joy? What if they were meant to invite me into joy and invite me into intimacy? You are the apple of his eye and you can trust him. Let's pray.